Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 180, recorded Thursday, October 28th, 2021. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, tracking COVID travel requirements and cycling through Puglia. Coming to you today from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois, after two weeks in the south of Italy, a cycling tour through Puglia, and then visiting friends in Sicily. They, uh, they're grabbing one last bit of sunshine, topping up their vitamin D levels before the short, cold days of northern Europe's winter sets in. I've talked in the past couple of episodes about planning for this trip, the changes, the shifts I've had to make, and and about all the places in the itinerary where things could have gone wrong, all the segments, all the legs, but none of them did. For sure, there was a little weirdness along the way, especially in Sicily, but every flight and train leg was on time and, you know, pretty uneventful. Now, we hit what is now kind of, I think, typical mask rule inconsistencies right off the bat in O'Hare. We walked into the Swiss port lounge that Air France and others use uh, for business class in uh, Terminal 5 in O'Hare and got the mask rules uh, read out to us. Mask on unless actively eating or drinking. So it was airplane rules. And then we walk into what is a small crowded room with no real good ventilation, it didn't feel like, no food, and a pretty dire bar. We sat down, but after a couple of minutes, we walked right back out, straight down the concourse to Torta's Frontiera, our favorite O'Hare restaurant, and had some good margaritas. And and also where they were applying Chicago indoor mask rules where you drop your mask once you're at your table. And quite honestly, given the openness of uh, Terminal 5 of the, of the concourse, the high ceilings and, you know, ventilation, that didn't bother us that much. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it was worth paying 90 bucks to drink quality margaritas. And at that number, it was a couple of rounds. But it was better to do that quality and comfort rather than playing mask peekaboo with the uh, Swiss ports free wine. So the next morning, getting off the Air France flight in De Gaulle, uh, you know, De Gaulle was just as an airport, making that connection was just more confusing than I remember it being back in 2019. Getting from Terminal 2E, which is where we landed, to 2F, where our flight to uh, Bari Puglia was taken off, I don't know, it seemed to take more cognitive power than it should have. Uh, either they've reconfigured some stuff uh, post-COVID, or maybe I just hadn't gotten quite as much sleep on the flight over from Chicago as I thought. But all in all, it was an easy, unavailable eventful, if kind of full, flight uh, over to Italy. My biggest worry, actually, was our flights the following week from Brindisi in Puglia to Catania in Sicily with that connection through Rome on what would be the second day of operations for ITA, the Italian government's successor to the now bankrupt and the now shut down Alitalia. Uh, This itinerary on ITA certainly wasn't my first choice, but as I mentioned in the past couple of episodes, I really didn't have another one. There were labor actions leading up to the Swiss 
switch over to ITA that could have disrupted operations. And even without any strikes or any slowdowns, you'd figure that there were, I don't know, at least a couple of hundred places where some minor snafu, some computer system not quite getting swapped over could have disrupted operations and, and and really botch up their their big Rome hub. But other than a couple of agents maybe staging an impromptu work slowdown at the Brindisi check-in desk, or I don't know, maybe that was just their normal work pace, it all went smoothly. And really, across all our travel legs, but for wearing masks and having our vaccination cards checked, it didn't seem all that different from 2019. Now, I know that's a pretty big but for, but I was just happy to take it. So following up, Jerry Serfati hit the Travel Commons Instagram feed to give his experience renewing his global entry status. Jerry said, Thanks for the latest podcast. I refreshed my global entry. Very easy. Was told 72 hours later that all was approved. No interview needed. Well, Jerry, thanks for that. I actually, I just checked and a month and a half later, or 936 hours using Jerry's unit of measure, the TTP dashboard, Trusted Traveler Program, still shows an hourglass next to wait for conditional approval. But I'm guessing I'm probably a bit more of a suspect character than Jerry is. So Twitter user at LA Flyer weighed in on last episode's discussion about how business travelers are still MIA, missing in action. They write, Thanks for the new episode. In my opinion, face-to-face is becoming increasingly the edge case. I think we've proven we can manage so much remotely that the need for on-site in-person meetings will be the exception, not the rule anymore. And that's okay with me. I prefer my own bed over traveling 200,000 miles annually. Look, I think this is valid, and as we've talked before, a widely held opinion, belief, hope, that uh, beginning in March 2020, we've now all lived through really an extended crash course in remote work and video conferencing. We've done it successfully, and so we can now significantly reduce uh, our need for business travel, which will allow people to spend more time in their own beds and with their families, as well as reducing business expenses uh, and airplane carbon emissions. Now, the big question, and we've talked about this before, how much business travel will be eliminated? Is it 20%, 30%, 50%? I don't know, and I'm guessing it's going to take another year, really, before we really start to figure out the answer on this. Now, back in the August episode, asking the question, what will remain from these pandemic times, the death of daily hotel room cleaning service was at the top of my list. Indeed, Hilton had just announced their move to on-demand housekeeping across all their non-luxury brands. But in Italy, I saw none of this. Not only did every hotel service our rooms every day, they were still doing turndown service at night. And they were doing regular breakfasts, though with staff plating your food from the buffet rather than you digging in yourself. Now, we weren't staying at major brands, only small Italian brands or independents. So I don't know if that changes things. But I got to tell you, they were much better hotel experiences than I've had recently in the U.S. I didn't realize how aggressive Apple is about pushing iOS updates, the iPhone updates, uh, until I was in Italy on this trip. 
Now, normally I update pretty quickly when I'm at home, but again, on this trip, it seemed like I had to wave off the 15.0.2 update every couple of days. I didn't bring my laptop with me, so I had no way to recover if, you know, for some odd reason, the upgrade bricked my iPhone. And if I didn't have my iPhone, I, I wouldn't have been able to do the video chat session uh, with uh, Abbott or actually with Emed for the Abbott home test kit. That was what I was going to be what, what we were going to use to satisfy the U.S. Uh, requirement for a negative COVID test to fly home. And nor actually would I have been able to display those test results to anyone who asked for it. It just reminded me, as if we don't know it already, you just can't travel anymore without a working mobile phone. I've talked in past episodes about how I will use a VPN, a virtual private network, when using public Wi-Fi networks in hotels, airports, Starbucks, to make my connection more secure. And I've used all the top paid VPNs over the years, ExpressVPN, NordVPN, PIA, and am using NordVPN now. And I've never had a problem you know, nailing up a connection to the VPN server until this trip to Italy. More than a couple of times, the VPN client just wouldn't connect to an Italian server. So as I'm way too prone to do, I bitch tweeted at NordVPN, and to their credit, they immediately responded. We flipped over to direct messaging, and they started troubleshooting with me. What finally worked was connecting to one of their obfuscated servers, which are specialized VPN servers that hide the fact that they're VPN servers. Uh, I, now, I don't know if there are Italian regulations against using VPNs or if just a couple of Italian ISPs are blocking VPNs for some reason. But whatever the reason, I, I, I give NordVPN props for constructively responding to my whining and very quickly solving my problem. Now, also back in the August episode when we were talking about booking our uh, travel over to Italy, I, I, I mentioned that I was burning off some Amex points to fly Air France business class. Now, I think by now the standard business class seat is an individual pod that gives you your own space, your own cocoon. Now, some are snugger than others, uh, United, I'm looking at you. But, you know, and maybe the buttons and the amenities are a bit different. But I have to tell you, over the past five to six years, when I've flown international business class, this is what I've come to expect. You know, your own little pod, your own little cocoon. So when I got to my seat on this Air France 777 that we were flying from O'Hare to De Gaulle, I was very underwhelmed. No pods, just the standard 232 seat configuration with no separators between the seats. I tweeted out a couple of pictures. It was not a great first impression. But the service was good. The food and wine were very good, as I would expect from Air France. And also, they didn't put a third person in the center section where Irene and I were sitting. So that that helped. And I actually ended up sleeping very well. The seats, even though they weren't pods, they were they did go into lie flat. So I got what I thought was good sleep on the way over with the help of an after dinner Armagnac. 
Now, flying home was Lufthansa from Catania in Sicily to Munich in Germany, and then United straight back to O'Hare. Now, I wasn't thrilled with the connection through Munich. The last time we'd connected through there, long lines at passport control and then security had us sprinting down the concourse to make what should have been a pretty easy and leisurely connection. But this time, it wasn't a problem. There was maybe a five-minute queue at passport control and no additional security that we had to go through, so we had time to grab some breakfast in the Lufthansa lounge before heading down to the United Gate. Walking to the gate, I said to Irene, hey, you know, looks like they fixed whatever the problem was when we were here last because this has been a pretty smooth connection. And as the word smooth left my mouth, we saw the line. Now, luckily for us, we didn't have to get in it. It was a huge tailback out of passport control from people arriving from the U.S., to Munich, trying to get into the Schengen zone to make their connecting flight, which was indeed the same thing that happened to us the last time we were uh, through Munich. So they hadn't fixed the problem. Munich hadn't fixed the problem. Arriving Munich from the U.S., still a problem. Leaving Munich to the U.S., not so much. I have filed that away for future reference. Now, once on the United flight, it was a uh, 787, really nice plane. I noticed, though, that our seatback screens weren't working. Now, I mentioned this to the flight attendant when she came by to check on our seatbelts and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't a problem. There was no one in the center section. This plane, this flight was maybe half full at best. And so... You know, we could have slid over to the center section because all those screens were working. As it was, Irene was reading a book. I was listening to podcasts. So we really didn't need the screens. I just figured I'd tell the flight attendant so that the O'Hare maintenance crew would know to look at it. About halfway through the flight, and it's an eight and a half, nine hour flight, the, the attendant comes back around and she says she wants to give us something for our inconvenience. I want to do something for you because you've been so nice about this, she said. Now, mind you, there was absolutely no inconvenience to Irene or I, but if United wants to give me free stuff, who am I to refuse? Uh, so the flight attendant pulled out her phone, opened an app, and for each of us, she first checked our email addresses and then asked, what did we want? 7,500 miles or $150 in credit? We took the money. And then when we landed in O'Hare, when we lit up our phones on the runway, we actually both had emails with the voucher details. I, I have to tell you, it, I got to be nice more often. And hey, if you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, some nice comments as opposed to rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account like Jerry did at Travel Commons. Or you can always post your comments on the website at TravelCommons.com. So the first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is tracking COVID travel requirements. If my biggest worry on our Italy trip was our Saturday flights on ITA, 
My second and more chronic worry was that we'd get caught up in paperwork hassles at one of the borders we were crossing, France, Italy, Germany, the U.S., maybe missing something in all the different requirements, having some airport gate agent or train conductor or immigration guy enforcing their own unique interpretation of the requirements, or our paper CDC vaccination card not being accepted in lieu of the EU green pass QR code on our phones. The great thing, as I said earlier, is that none of this came to pass. And at the end of each travel day, I let out a small sigh of relief, just enough to feel good, but not so much that it might jinx the next travel day. Catania Airport, where we flew into and out of Sicily, was the only place where things got a little uh, weird. We landed there at 8 p.m. Saturday after a pretty flawless trains, planes, and automobiles travel day, an on-time, almost empty train ride from Lecce to Brindisi, a taxi to the airport, the no-problem ITA flights, and now in Catania, our bags were the first ones to pop off the luggage belt. Another small sigh of relief, and we walk out of baggage claim to meet our friends, only to be waylaid by two security guards. Where did you come from? One of them asked. Rome, I said, because that's the flight we got off of. Where are you from? The U.S. Go to the line on the right, she said. I looked at the sign. It said, COVID-19 test. Apparently, Sicily, or maybe just Catania Airport, was requiring on-site COVID tests for all non-EU arrivals. I was completely blindsided. There was nothing like this when we landed in Bari and Puglia 10 days earlier, and I didn't see this anywhere on any of the many Italian governmental websites that I'd checked before our trip. Looking down the testing line, it was beginning to tail back. This was going to be a bad time. Wait, 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 wait a minute, I said to the other guard. We've been in Italy since the beginning of the month. I pulled out my paper boarding passes from ITA that luckily I had kind of stuffed in one of my notebooks. See, look, we started our flight in Brindisi. We just connected through Rome to get here. You've been here two weeks, he asked. Actually, it was more like 10 days, but at this point I wasn't going to correct anybody's math. Okay, no need to test. Go to the left. And he waved to our colleague to let us through. We quickly walked outside before either of them could change their minds and saw the COVID test line full of people trying to fill out forms on each other's backs while standing in a line that led to a large room full of cubicles where yet more people were waiting to be tested. It looked like at least an hour's worth of a very bad time. I, on the other hand, was very happy that the security guard was fluent enough in English to let me talk my way out of that. All the different shades of testing and tracking requirements by country, by state, even by city, Italy requiring an EU digital passenger locator form, proof of vaccination, and a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours of arrival, which is versus the U.S. requirement that the test be taken within 72 hours of departure. Puglia then adding to that another form to be filled out and emailed to the regional health department before arrival. And then there's Sicily's, I don't know, stealth on arrival COVID testing. And quite honestly, right now, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the UK wants of us for our trip there at the back half of November, because it looks like the rules changed a bit this week. It keeps you a bit off balance, a bit anxious that 
you've missed something somewhere that's either A, going to land you in a long line, like in Catania, B, is going to mean you got to pay some fine, or C, that you're going to have cops trying to track you down a week after you landed. Now, I have to tell you that the mechanics of all of it, all the COVID requirements, it, it caught me off guard at first. Checking into our Air France flight in O'Hare, the agent checked our vaccination cards and that EU digital uh, passenger locator form, uh, which, in spite of being digital, I had printed out to make it easier to show someone. But then when we arrived in Bari, we walked straight out of baggage claim to the terminal. There was no one to check any of our paperwork. Now, the same thing happened to our son Andrew last month when he flew into Barcelona. I don't know. It seems like governments have made all of this, all these COVID uh, requirements, they've made them a new boarding requirement and just pushed responsibility to check them onto the carrier that you're taking. Kind of like the carrier checks your passport and visa to make sure you can get into the country you're going to. I guess they've tacked on these additional COVID requirements. But but even then, when I land in a new country, there's still someone in a booth checking my passport. Irene tried to show one border police guy her vaccination card at some point, and he just waved her off. But Italy is pretty strict around requiring proof of vaccination to go inside a restaurant or a bar or a cathedral or an airport. So while the border cops weren't interested in our vaccination status, a lot of waiters were. We kept our CDC cards handy, tucked into our passports. I I worried about places turning us away for not being able to show the EU Green Pass QR code. But again, I was happy to be wrong. There was only one place, a restaurant in Bari, where a young waiter waitress hesitated when we showed her our CDC cards, but almost immediately one of the older waiters ran up, looked at the cards, and said, no, 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 it's all good. Maybe some of this is timing. When Italy first reopened back in, I don't know what, July, and people were trying to figure out things on the fly, maybe, you know, back then it, it would make sense that waiters or gate agents would turn people away, you know, brandishing some unfamiliar piece of cardboard. But now, two to three months on, they seem to have figured that out. Uh, It seems to be working. I'm hoping that I can keep figuring it out, too. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is cycling through Puglia. Now, this trip, didn't start with the idea, let's go to Puglia. Instead, it started at the tired end of a Chicago winter as a combination of let's go back to Europe and let's go on a cycling tour. And then looking at what rides were available in the fall, because back in April, Europe was not doing a great job with vaccination rollouts. And that is the path that ended us up in Puglia. Now, we'd done a self-guided cycling tour in southwest Scotland some years ago, but in southern Italy, never having been there before, not sure how much support there would be, and not sure, quite honestly, how much English uh, we could count on, we decided to go with a full tour. We'd narrowed the tour companies down to trek travel and back roads. They both had good Puglia itineraries. I'd done a trek tour in Moab, Utah some years back, so we decided to give back roads a shot. 
There were 16 people on the tour, 12 of whom were Backroads veterans, some very much so. One couple had done a Provence tour with them back in July, and then there was another woman who was doing back-to-back Backroads tours. The week before, she'd ridden their Sicily tour and then flew straight up to Bari for this tour. And these folks said they keep coming back because Backroads does a great job of organizing everything. It makes travel easy. You know, it was kind of the same thing I hear from people who are big into cruising. Show up in some new part of the world and have people take care of you. And all that being said, after six days and 200 miles in the saddle, I came away happy, if a little sore, with the tour and impressed with both the hospitality and the service ethic of the Backroads tour guides. We were riding through Puglia the week of October 10th, which was probably one week too late because the towns were beginning to close up for the season. One day we had a couple of hours in the hill town of Astuni for lunch, but struggled to find a restaurant that was open. Many of them were dark, even though the signs on the doors said that they should be open, as did the hours listed on their websites and on their Google Maps listing. There were no signs saying closed for the season, just locked doors through which we could see the chairs up on all the tables. We had similar experiences in Otranto and, to a lesser extent, Lecce. One of the Backroads guides said that Puglia is a popular destination for Italian tourists from up north. Many of them have vacation homes there in Puglia. And when these folks head home and the kind of the season rolls up, the remaining locals and, I don't know, the handful of misdirected tourists like us just aren't enough to keep all the bars and restaurants going. But the touring was great, riding alongside groves of huge, old, gnarled olive trees with vegetable crops like fennel and bitter greens planted underneath, or along the Adriatic Sea, up on a ridge along the coastal road, and then down through little beach towns and fishing villages. And actually, I think that's the way to do Puglia, touring, doing a couple of days each in Bari and Lecce, you know, wandering through the narrow streets of their old towns, maybe a day in Otranto with half-day stops in Alberobello, Matera, you know, and or Astuni, maybe a day or two hanging out in a nice agriturismo or on one of those little beach towns on the Adriatic. Along with the biking, we drank a lot of wine, mostly the local Primitivo, a grape closely related to California Zinfandel, and we also ate a lot of seafood, especially octopus. At dinner during our second night in Bari, a young guy walked in with two clear plastic buckets full of small octopus, octopuses, octopi, uh, very similar to a bucket I saw at the feet of a fisherman at the dock in Bari earlier in the day. I don't think the seafood in any of the places that we ate at that week had been out of the Adriatic for much more than 24 hours before it hit our plates. It was a different experience, a different vibe from our prior trips to Italy, which had all been up north, to Tuscany, to Milan, to Venice. But biking through those olive groves, through those fields, along through the little towns, that's a lower-key experience. And it was the experience that we were looking for and got on our time in Puglia. And look, hey, if you want to see some pictures, head over to the Travel Commons Instagram site, and click on the little circle that says Puglia, Sicily, I've collected some of the better Instagram stories pictures that I posted during our trip. Mm 
Okay, that's it. That's the end of Trevor Cummins podcast number 180. I hope you all enjoyed the show, and I hope you decide to stay subscribed. A quick program note, the November episode probably won't show up until the first week of December. So do I still call it a November episode? I don't know. Since we don't return from the UK until after Thanksgiving weekend. So I haven't pod faded, just had an extended absence from the editing bay. But as always, you can find us and listen to us on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. Check out the show notes on TravelCommons.com for the transcript and links. You can also click on the link in the episode description in your podcast app. Most of those apps support uh, HTML. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of those sites? Or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really the only way to grow a podcast anymore. And if you're not subscribed, hit the website at TravelCommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, a set of subscribe links at the bottom, a big red subscribe button in the middle of the homepage. And across the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to all the Travel Common socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe to the Instagram account, and I promise you'll get some pics from our November trip to the UK. And as always, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, at travelcommons.com, or to M. Peacock on Twitter, like L.A. Flyer did. Write them on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram, uh, like Jerry did, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to send in emails, tweets, and post comments on the website. I really appreciate it. And until now, the first week of December, (laughs) Uh, and when we talk again, take care, travel safe, and thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now.